Well, welcome to the Advent season. If you knew it or not, we are walking into this season of waiting, of anticipation, of purposeful patience called Advent. And if you grew up in church, maybe more traditional church, uh, you think about Advent, you think about candles, you think about calendars and chocolate, right? That's what we think of when we think about Advent. But it's so much more than just that kind of a season. Advent actually, uh, it means this. Advent means arrival. It's this ancient word that means the coming of or the arrival of someone. And I find this fascinating, maybe just because I'm a a dork, but I find this fascinating that Advent is not a Christian word. It's not a spiritual word. It's not even a religious word. It's actually a political term from the Roman Empire. Yeah, that Roman Empire, like Russell Crowe, Gladiator, that Roman Empire. And Advent was a political phrase from the Roman Empire. And the men in here have already thought about the Roman Empire five times in the last 10 minutes. So anyway, uh, in the Roman imperial system, an Advent was the arrival of a Caesar to a province or a colony of Rome. It was this political ceremony. So the emperor would come into a specific colony of Rome and everybody for months and months in advance would be preparing and throwing out the red carpet and having all the pomp and circumstance and getting their best singers and their best dancers and their best artists ready for this massive parade to prepare for the arrival of the Caesar, of the emperor as he walked into the community. Advent was all about preparation to welcome a king. And so what did Christians do? Christians stole or adapted or, you know, borrowed this idea of Advent and flipped it upside down and shaped it around the birth of their king, of this little baby refugee from the backwaters of the Roman Empire that they believe turned the whole world upside down named Jesus. And Advent is this preparation to welcome this king, to make room for this king, it's to make room in the lives of the followers of Jesus or in their hearts for this king. So maybe something needs to be rearranged or uh, moved around to make room for Jesus. First century Christians celebrated Advent to make room for his kingdom, which means like his way of behaviors and attitudes to permeate our lives so that we love others well. And it was this idea, Advent was, to make room for us to invite others into his reality and his family and his is love. Advent, when we really understand it, it's an anticipation season. It's a preparation season. It's also a season of waiting for the arrival of our king. And I don't know about you, but when we talk about waiting, I'm not good at it. I hate waiting. I am not a patient person. God has so much work to do in my life because I hate waiting. I hate when I'm texting somebody, I ask them a question and I text them and they don't respond back. And then I see the three dots and I just sort of stare at my phone. <laughs> Any moment now. And then every now and again, I get so impatient. I do the question mark emoji back because I just need them to know this is really important right now. I'm terrible. I hate waiting for that. I hate waiting for like a, a video that I want to show people uh, online because it always ends up buffering right when I want to show it to somebody else, right? It works perfectly just for you. You show it for other people and it's buffering and then it's so embarrassing. I hate waiting for cookies to like cool down and the roof of my mouth is like permanently burnt, I think, because of that. I learned that every Christmas season. Some of us in the room, uh, if you're Ohio State fans, you have to wait another year to say that you beat Michigan, I guess. Don't worry, the groans, the groans. Don't worry, there's no perfect people out here, Buckeye fans. You're, you're fine here. But anyway, had to get that in just a little bit because yesterday was 
Mm, so much fun. I hate waiting. And, and like you think about Thanksgiving weekend and the meals that we all have, like there's some specific waiting to that, right? Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I do some like really unspiritual fasting earlier in the day on Thanksgiving to where I'm just trying to save room to make room for uh, the good food that we're all going to have together. Then we finally get to someone's house and like the, the house just smells amazing, right? With like everything you can possibly imagine. Those favorite dishes that your family makes that you only get like once a year and you're pumped for it, you're waiting, and it looks amazing, smells amazing. And then every couple years, uh, someone who's hosting our family Thanksgiving, we're all around the table ready to dig in, and I'm like so hungry and so excited. They have this brilliant idea to be like, hey, before we eat, what do you say we go around and we all say something that we're thankful for this year? To which I'm always thinking, ain't nobody got time for that. Like, I'm thankful. Can we say I'm thankful and just move on? And like, it goes around and some people are really sure, but there's always the couple people that want to do mini sermons. And I'm like, you're fine. And then it gets to me who's like, everybody expects to give a sermon. I'm like, I'm grateful. I'm thankful that we're about to eat. That's what I want to do. Amen. And just move forward. That's just how I am. But I hate waiting for that kind of a thing as well, right? And those are like silly things that we have to wait for. But some of you, when you look back on 2023, as we're heading to the last bit of it, you look back on your whole year and you feel like it's been like an entire year marked by waiting. And it's not been cute, it hasn't been funny, it's been painful, it's been hard. It feels like you've just got radio silence from God and the things that you desire that you feel like aren't bad things to desire, you haven't received them or it hasn't come in the timing that you want it to come. And you think like, man, my whole existence has just been waiting for good things to happen. Maybe for you, you're in a season of loneliness and isolation, and you feel like you're just still waiting for the right person to come into your life. Maybe for you, you've had this dream that you feel like God was a part of, and he put it inside of your heart, and you're waiting for that dream to actually come to fruition, to actually happen and be realized, and it just doesn't seem to be moving at all. Maybe for you, you're waiting on an opportunity that you were promised and you're just like waiting. You got one foot up in the air to take that step, but it just doesn't seem like it's happening anytime soon. Maybe for you, you're waiting for some pain to end. Maybe it's mental pain. Maybe it's emotional pain. Maybe it's chronic physical pain that every day is just a struggle and you just are longing for the doctors and your medical team to come up with the right cocktail of medications that are going to make it go away, but they just haven't clicked into gear Yeah. I just recognize as we're heading into what's often considered the happiest time of the year that many of us, we look back on our year, and I don't mean this in a crude way, but it's really been a hell of a year. And we're just waiting for God to show up and do what we heard he does. We're waiting for it, but we're waiting for it in our lives. So today, I don't know what that sound is. That's a little, I think it's coming from the restroom that really scares me, but anyway. Today, I want to encourage us all, I want to encourage us to lean in, I want to encourage you to possibly open up your hearts and your minds to believe that there can be a purpose in our waiting. And as we begin this Advent season that is purposeful waiting, part of why we're doing it, that God wants to do something inside of us while we wait. And there can be something beautiful come from this season, even if it's been painful. Even if it's been hard, beautiful things can happen. And God often does beautiful work in our lives in those desert seasons, in those silent seasons, in those waiting seasons. 
To do so, I want to take us to uh, the New Testament book of Luke. Luke was actually one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that are recorded for us in our New Testaments. Luke, the author, uh, he was actually not an eyewitness. He was a medical doctor who became a follower of God. And he was a medical doctor, and he takes like a ton of uh, ink to explain that he uh, interviewed hundreds of eyewitnesses and heard eyewitnesses' accounts from all over the place about what happened with Jesus and who Jesus was and all the story about Jesus. And then he begins his letter and he begins the Christmas story actually before Jesus, Mary, and Joseph with another couple, another couple that we often gloss over. And honestly, this is the first time I've ever preached this passage today, but it's a couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth who find themselves at the end of years and years of waiting and longing. I think there's so much we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth's story of pain, of waiting, and how God works in the midst of all of it. So we're going to pick up in verse 5 of Luke's gospel, his biography of Jesus' life. It's going to start with somebody who's not Jesus' uh, parents, somebody else. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old." We're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were told they come from priest family. Zechariah is a spiritual leader in the community as a priest. They're blameless, like they're people that walk with God and they walk with God with a pure heart, but there's a problem. They don't have kids. And in the same way that it can be kind of a stigma today in our world, it was a huge stigma in the ancient world to not have a child if you were married. This would be like a scarlet letter on their lives. Like they're supposed to be spiritual leaders, but people would be whispering about them. They'd be wondering, what did they do wrong? I wonder if they have secret sin in their life, or maybe uh, somebody in their family has sinned and they're being punished for their ancestors' sin. I mean, it was something that they had to struggle with because of the whispers, because of all the people looking at them differently because they didn't have children. And Luke gives us this little coda to explain that this isn't a sad situation. This is a hopeless situation because he says they were both very old. The clock had uh, been taken all the way around. They were too old. This was not part of their story anymore is what Luke was saying. And then we're told this in the next couple verses, Zechariah goes to work. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty at the temple, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah had this honor as being one of God's priests during this time to go and burn incense inside of the temple. Now, there's a beautiful parallel that biblical scholars will bring up here because in Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal life, they were longing. They they felt like they were barren, that their desire, their heart to be parents was something that God just wasn't granting because of something they did or something that was out of their control. But they had these longings inside of them to become parents. But at the same time, God's people at this point, they had felt this longing inside of them for over 400 years. God had been silent. It seemed like God wasn't moving all the way from the end of the Old Testament book of Malachi to this moment in the New Testament where like, God, where are you? They're being oppressed and being occupied by the Roman Empire. They felt like nobody was going to come and establish God's kingdom the way that it was promised. And there was all these like spiritual longings that they had as well. It's interesting that God chose Zechariah 
a man who was experiencing this personal barrenness and longing to represent all of his people as they collectively, as a country, as a nation, were feeling this longing, this barrenness as well. And, and, and this role of burning incense was to bring the prayers of the people before God in this sacred way so that God hear our prayers. And God chose Zechariah to be the stand-in for this moment. And it's in this moment when he is standing as a representative of God's people and as someone who has this own longing in his life that something wacky, something spiritual, something supernatural happens. We're told this in the very next verse. Then... An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, notice he didn't think like, this is so awesome, this is so cute, this is so amazing. He was startled and was gripped with fear. And if you guys don't know why Zechariah was freaked out when he saw an angel, just Google biblical description of an angel and you'll have nightmares for the rest of your life. But the angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. The angel continues on to talk about all the impact that John, this John, who would later be given the moniker John the Baptist, who'd be the front runner of Jesus. He starts to explain all that John will do in the nation of Israel and how he's going to kick off this event and this person that's going to change the whole world. But this whole time, I imagine that Zechariah is listening to this angel spouting off all this awesome stuff. And he's just like, no, you got the wrong guy. I think you're supposed to get the guy next year. It wasn't me. Because I love the honesty. I love the realism. I love the impolite way that Zechariah actually responds to this angel's message of hope. He says this. Zechariah asked the angel. He asked him a question. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Like for nothing else, I love Zechariah's response because we see like some, some uh, marriage advice in this moment. Like he must've been married for a long time because he said, I'm an old man and my wife, well along in years, right? Like doesn't say that she's old at all. Guys, you should take that one home with you if you get nothing else out from today. But I love in this moment, that Zechariah is not like, yes, send me. I get to be a part of God's epic story of redemption. And he's putting the whole world back together and he's bringing his kingdom here. This is so awesome. He's like, no, I think you got the wrong guy. Like, how can I be sure of this? Like, you don't understand the road that my wife and I have walked. You don't understand the shame that we have walked with. You don't understand that like our entire identity is that thing we don't have that we want. Just a little bit of a sidebar here. Zechariah was a man righteous before God. My friends, don't ever buy into the lie that your doubts and questions move you away from God. Don't ever buy into the lie that you need to shut off your brain and not ask the questions that you're wrestling with. Because like we say around here all the time, doubts and questions are not the enemy of your faith, but silence can be. So ask the question. God's big enough for whatever doubt and question that you have. He wants you to bring your whole self to him. That includes your mind. Zechariah in this moment is being a righteous man of God who's asking an angel a doubt-filled question. And that's okay. And many of you, like you understand this response from Zechariah because you've had a season of your life, you look back on your life or maybe you're in it right now where you're like, yeah, I don't think I would believe it even if God sent a messenger into my life because like I've just lived with disappointment. I've lived with longing for so long. I can't even imagine that this can be true. And so you've got doubts. You've got questions towards God as well. 
and, and I think back about like my own life, um, years and years ago, uh, Megan and I got married. My wife and I got married. Uh, I was 22 and she was 21. And so we were married young. So we felt like, well, our plan is that we'll wait five years and we'll just be a married couple. And then we'll start trying to have a family. And so about three years in, I was trying to convince her we should start a family earlier. She's like, no, we had the plan. That's how she rolls. And that's what we did. Right. So, so it's like year five. I'm like, okay, let's start to have a family. And so we stopped trying not to have kids. Right. And in that, in that moment, we're like, oh, it's been six months. It's been a year rolls into year two and nothing's happening and we're starting to ask questions. She goes to her doctor, asks what's going on. They try some medication and then we uh, start trying again. Nothing is happening another full year in to where we get uh, the beautiful reference to what no couple wants to hear, an infertility specialist, right? And so we leave town and go to a doctor and we're given a lot of different options of things to do. They give us some interventions because we're wanting to have a family and we move through some of the interventions and, and then we actually have this, this exciting thing happen where there's a pregnancy test and it's a faint blue line. It's a faint blue line. And we're so excited. We think that God's finally come through. We're going to have a family now, right? And then the next couple days, the next couple days, that line gets even more faint. And we found out that we were losing this baby and we experienced a pregnancy loss. All along through this time, um, my wife, we had so many friends and family members that were having kids. I think she threw five or six different baby showers during this time to where she was handling it all with grace, even though it was a struggle for her. And I was becoming more bitter during this time. I was thinking like, God, what is up with this? What are we doing wrong? God, why don't you do this for us that you did for other people? And I'm talking a lot of impolite ways to God. We go back to our fertility specialist and we actually get another positive pregnancy test. But this time we're not all to the moon. We're thinking, hope so, maybe. Walk a little bit farther down the road. The numbers seem to be going in the right direction. Then all of a sudden the numbers weren't going in the right direction. Experienced another pregnancy loss in this time. And all the while, like we started to ask questions, or at least I started to ask questions about God and his character. Like, God, I saw you do this for them. And is there something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? I started to like maybe ask questions and believe things that I don't really believe in my head and heart, but it was starting to make its way. Like, God, where are you in this? What's wrong with us? Why can't this come to fruition in us? And our whole attitude was sort of bent with this cynicism of like, will this ever, can this ever happen? And it was a season where we weren't in wonder about God's character, but we were wondering about God's character. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? Where you've been waiting and it feels like radio silence and you're wondering if God is who he says he is or if he is the way he's shown up for other people that you know? I think this is exactly where Zechariah was in this moment, meeting this angel in the temple. But it's a fascinating thing when I look back on my life and our marriage during that time, because God did something during that season. God rearranged some things in my heart and in my understanding of God that I don't think he would have done if it was just moving all in the right direction the way that we always wanted. Uh, and I think it's put perfectly from this quote from Rich Viotas, who's a pastor in New York City. He says this, what God does in us as we wait is often more important than what we are waiting for. Like there can be a purpose, there can be action while we wait. And the action and the purpose maybe not hap doesn't happen outside of us, but it happens inside of us. What God does in us 
as we wait is often more important than what we are waiting for. I've just come to believe, I've lived long enough now, I've come to believe that like God does something powerful in our waiting. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to, if you're in a season of waiting, or maybe you know someone in a season of waiting, or maybe I can give you the bad good news that like someday you're going to be in a season of waiting if it's not you now. I want to encourage you with some things to know that God can do if we partner with him in our seasons of waiting to have purpose and to have transformation. The first thing that God does in our waiting inside of us is this. In our waiting, God teaches us to trust him to trust him in a new way, in a deeper way, sometimes in a truer, more real way. I mean, our culture breeds this attitude of self-reliance, right? Like it's what we celebrate, like Steve Jobs did it all from his garage. Look what he built from like nothing, right? He's a college dropout. Look what he did all on his own. He pulled himself up from his bootstraps and made it happen. We, we celebrate that and our culture breeds that. And I'm an achiever, type A, like if there's a big challenge, it makes me run, run faster towards it. I have a bias for action. And so I got pretty broad shoulders. And so I'm running most of the time, if I'm honest, like through a lens of self-reliance that I know how to do this. I've done this before. We can make it happen. But I experience, and maybe you've experienced that there are times in our lives and our waiting where we can't will it into existence, where we find the end of ourselves and our power, and we've got to trust and grasp and embrace for something above us and something beyond us. And that's when we have the opportunity to trust God, which is the thing that we need more than anything. You know, when we wait, when we're in those seasons of waiting, when we're longing for something to happen, man, we're trusting in God's timing and God's always working off of a different clock. And it's so dang frustrating, isn't it? I imagine that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have loved to have the timing of their child and them being parents earlier in their life, right? But God knew that there was something else going on and God wanted them to learn how to trust him because he knew that's what would change them the most. And when we, when we are in our waiting, God teaches us to trust him and trust his timing. It grows us and moves us in a new way. It gives us faith. You know, often inside of church and Christian traditions, we talk about faith, like the faith, like the set of doctrines that we need to believe. Or we talk about faith where we're like, I just believe it's all going to work out. I'm just having faith. I just believe. And I, I think faith is less of those two things. And it comes down to the essence of what faith is. Faith is trust. Faith is trusting the character of God. It's looking back and seeing how God has been faithful and trusting him into the future. Faith is trusting that God is writing a beautiful story in the world, even though there's so much pain and heartbreak and longing and destitute lives and problems, God is still working it all towards restoration and good. Faith is trusting God, trusting the story that he's writing. And it's in those moments when we're waiting that we really learn how to trust him and how he's the only thing we need because he's the only thing we actually have. Another thing that God does in our waiting, in our waiting, God matures us. Or maybe I should say he matures us, right? You know, there's nothing that shows off our immaturity as humans more than when we don't get what we want when we want it, right? It just like shows us our immaturity so quickly. Like right now, if we're watching like a YouTube show with my uh, son Jack and Thomas, four years old and two years old, maybe it's the Bluey episode that I've seen 500 times, but sometimes I'm not watching it intently, so I'm just on my phone scrolling, and all of a sudden I'll hear them in unison yell at the TV and yell at me, Dad, Ad, 
dad, ad. And that means that like there's a commercial on the screen I need to skip through to get back to the episode. And I want to be like, when I was your age, I'd wait five to seven minutes for all those commercials and they weren't all kids' toys and sometimes they didn't all that kind of thing, but that's not really helpful. But they're immature, man. They're not good at waiting. But adults, we're not good at it either. I remember a couple years ago when the Popeye's chicken restaurant opened, and I am, if, if you know nothing else, I am a connoisseur of fancy uh, fast food fried chicken sandwiches. And so I know I'm a Christian, so I should love Chick-fil-A and the gospel bird, but give me the devil's chicken anytime at Popeye's. It's a great chicken sandwich. So we go on opening day, Nico, our next-gen pastor, and I, and there's a long line out the door, but we're like, this is an experience. This is going to be so cool. And we wait like 30 minutes for a chicken sandwich, and there are people in front of us that are waiting and they're just like just cussing under their breath and they're like yelling at these teenagers working for minimum wage right in front of them about how long it took them to get their chicken i'm like bro it's a chicken sandwich it's a great chicken sandwich but you're showing your immaturity right adults we have the same thing we don't wait well it's an amazing thing because in our waiting god matures us he grows us up he transforms us so that we can wait And I want you to think about this. If there was a time in your life, was there a time in your life when you felt like you were the closest to God? Is there a time in your life where you felt like you were growing in your relationship with God? If you can think about that time, I'll bet all the money in my pocket against all the money in your pocket that it wasn't a time that you were just killing it. It wasn't a time that things were going amazing at work. It wasn't a time when things were just going amazing at home and you were just slaying it every time you walked into a room. It wasn't that. It was probably a time that was hard. It's probably a time when things weren't going the way you wanted, but God drew close to you and you drew close to God in a new way. And that's when you felt the closest to him. I mean, this happened to me, um, you know, in early 2020, we actually opened Bridgeway. I had great timing. We had our grand opening March 8th of 2020. Some of you guys think about it, think about it, think about it. It's coming to you now, March 8th, 2020. We had our grand opening. It was like packed in here. It was so exciting. People were getting baptized. I was like, I get to be part of this awesome story that God's doing. This is awesome. So I'm putting in my slides for my second sermon ever, and my phone starts blowing up. Something about a coronavirus. And it was like shutting down the world and churches couldn't meet. And we were like, what are we doing? We just invested all this money in here. We don't even have cameras. I don't know what we're going to do. What is happening? I'm thinking I just made a big mess of my life. I got no plan B because I just started a church during a pandemic, right? And I would love to tell you that I was so full of faith that I'm like, God's going to teach us something. God's going to do something so powerful through this season. I, I would love to tell you that. But reality was that I just got so many messages from other pastor friends that I turned my phone off. I went home. I got in the shower and I cried until all the hot water was gone. Because I was thinking, what have I done? Are we even going to live? Like, we're washing our Amazon packages. Like, are we going to ever do church again? I don't even know what this is going to look like. And I was just like, at the end of my rope, like, what have I done? (laughs) I got no plan B. But it was during that season, if I look back on it, when we couldn't, like, hold services the way we can now, um, that God, like, grew muscles in me, and he grew things in me as a person and as a leader that I would have never gotten during easier times. Like we had no choice but to go around and bless other people because we couldn't hold services. What else are we going to do? And so that became a part of our personality, a part of our DNA as our church. I remember like setting up two cardboard boxes and leaning my phone up against my computer screen. And I just preached to my phone for like four months straight. And some of you guys watch those terribly produced videos on YouTube. God bless you. Uh, But it was like this time that God did something in me and gave me a strength I didn't even know I needed during the worst time ever to start a church. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Jesus, Joseph and Mary, like he was writing to God's people who were just struggling with an exile where they were kicked out of their homeland. 
But the prophet Isaiah writes these hope-filled words that I think are so true. Like I see these words now, not as Bible verses, but it's just a fact of the way that God works in my life. Isaiah says this, even youths will faint and be weary and young men will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Man, this is more than a memory verse. Like this is what God did in my life. And this is what God will do and wants to do in your life. That phrase, those who wait for the Lord, some translations say those who hope in the Lord. It's not just waiting and saying, woe is me, but those who are throwing all their hope in God's direction, even when it seems like nothing is going God's direction, man, God's going to renew their strength. God's going to lift them up. God's going to give them a stamina that they didn't even know they could ever have, and they will walk, and they'll never faint and never be alone. You guys, when we wait... God builds a maturity in us and grows us up for what we need. And, and he does something in ways that he'll never do when things are just going amazing. That's what he does in our waiting season. And lastly, in our waiting, this is what happens. God is at work. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, God is always at work. Back to our story with Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah just threw this doubt-filled question at this terrifying-looking angel, and he throws it out like, hey, you got the wrong person. It can't be me. We're way too old for this to happen. The angel speaks back to Zechariah and shows that God's still at work. He says this in verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, that you're going to have a baby. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, on a, just a ground level, it's easy to see this angel punishing Zechariah for having this doubt-filled question, but a lot of scholars, and I tend to agree with them, believe this wasn't as much a punishment, but it was giving Zechariah an opportunity to watch God work and not get in the way. Do you guys know what I mean? Like sometimes there's work that God needs to do that if we get in the way, we're going to try to force the hand. We're going to mess things up. So sometimes God takes us out of the equation, takes our hands off of the steering wheel for this to happen. And the angel making Zechariah go mute being like, just sit back and watch. Stop trying to will this into existence. You type A, bias for action, ninny, nincompoop. That's what I really wanted to say. So we see this happen. And, and through this moment, like, we, like what could possibly happen? How could God possibly work? But we're told this when uh, Zechariah is done at the temple, just a three verses later, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So the impossible thing happened. God was still working, even when it looked like he wasn't working and there was a baby. And I don't want you to miss this. If you're in a season of waiting or you have unfulfilled desires and longing, I want you to see what Elizabeth says. Elizabeth says this, like her first response is that the Lord has done this for me. God came through. He made a promise. He's the promise maker. He's the promise keeper. And he's shown his favor and he's taken away my disgrace from the community towards me. I want you to hear this. If you're in a season of longing, of waiting, unfulfilled desires, it feels like God's fallen asleep at the wheel. He's turned off the monitor on your life. He's gone radio silence. That in our waiting, God is still 
working. And God is still in the grace business to remove your shame and to make things right with you. And it might not be the way that you would have written the story, but God is a good God and we can take that to the bank because of what he's done in the past. And when it comes to like Megan and I's story, like we went through those years and years of infertility and longing and waiting and interventions that didn't work. And then we found interventions that did work. And by the grace of God and a whole lot of science, we have two amazing wild boys now that are four years old and two years old. I can't imagine our family without them. And I guess I can say this too, like we're actually expecting a third this spring. So that's a really good thing. That's a really exciting thing too, right? Yeah. So all those times, all those years, all those waiting, all, all those waiting seasons, like, like, man, God made it happen. And he was good when it wasn't happening as well. But he is the promise keeper promise maker and the promise keeper. Even in our waiting, when God does something in us, he's still working, even though we can't quite see it. So later, John the Baptist is born. I guess he was just known John at this point because he hadn't done any baptisms yet as a newborn. But the baby's born, and we're told this in verse 64 through 66. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak. The first thing he was doing was praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Notice that this wasn't just a big deal, God working inside of Elizabeth and Zechariah's life, but this was a big deal for all the nation of Israel, and then ultimately for the whole world that we're still talking about it today, because this was the kicking off party for God's rule and reign and his salvation coming to planet earth through Jesus. This was a huge deal. God was still working even when they couldn't see it at all. When they couldn't feel it, God was still working. So I want to come back to that quote from Rich Viotos. He says this, what God does in us as we wait is often more important than what we are waiting for. My friends, I don't know what season you're in, I don't know if you're in a waiting season. It feels like God's gone silent and you're waiting. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for. Maybe for you, it's infertility, where you have this desire in your heart that's just not fulfilled. Maybe for you, it is a child that you have who's struggling and you're longing for them to come home. Like not just like physically come home, but to like come home spiritually, to come home emotionally, to come home to who they truly are. Maybe for you, you're staring down a season where there's financial chaos, where there's just much more month than there is money, and you're heading into a stressful financial season, and it just feels like, God, where are you in this? Maybe for you, uh, you're longing for healing and restoration in some part of your life where things are off kilter, and you're just waiting for it to end. I don't know what it is for you, but I want to encourage you with this that God works in our waiting. God matures us in our waiting. God builds our trust and our faith in him in our waiting. And you are not alone. It's possible for you that the one thing you need to hear today is that you are not alone in your waiting season. It can be a very isolating thing. But part of the reason that there's a church And we can gather together is that we can stand with each other and say that in your waiting, you are not alone. 
And sometimes when we sing, it's like people lift our eyes and lift our countenance to see what's ultimately true when we can't do it on our own. So maybe for you, that's a reminder you need today is that you are not alone and you have brothers and sisters from all corners of this community who stand with you and will lift you up when you can't lift yourself up. But maybe the other challenge for you is in this waiting season to lean into God instead of leaning away from God, to actively wait for him, to hope in him and to trust in his timing in a new way. This is what I desire for me. What I desire for you is that we would be people that wait well, that we wait with purpose and we trust that God is working behind the scenes in ways that we can't imagine. And he's better at it than we are. He's more creative than we are. And we can trust him in the process. And even if we can't see it, he's still working. Even if we can't feel it, he's still working because he is the one who makes the promises and he's always good to his word. So may we, as we jump into this Advent season, the season of waiting, may we learn to wait well and wait with God, holding on to hope. Because our God is the one who brings hope.